Welcome to Radio Ombudsman. It's Rob Behrens here with background music from the uh, rising young composer David Ridley. Thank you very much for that. My guest today is Rachel Power, Chief Executive of the Patients Association with over 20 years experience of working in health and social care. She joined the Patients Association as its Chief Executive in June 2017 and has overseen a significant period of change. We're delighted to have you here. Thank you very much for being with us. So we like to start each episode by hearing a bit about our guests and where they come from. Anyone who's met you knows where you come from, but tell the listeners where you come from. (laughs) So, thanks Rob. So, I come from Ireland, which is why I think um, people know where I come from, and I come from the west coast of Ireland, from Galway. And tell us a bit about your early life. So, I have two sisters and a brother, and I lived in Galway with my mum and dad. It was a very different upbringing because it was a very small town at the time, it's now quite a big uh, a big city and my upbringing was surrounded by huge love and family who was looking out for me all the time. Okay, so did that instill values, obviously it did, in you that you've, you've tried to continue with, to live up to? Yeah, I hope so. I think the values of compassion and integrity were two that I was very much brought up with and I hope they're two that I have instilled in my two beautiful children. And one of community and understanding how we can all help each other and one of just caring quite a lot for each other and and thinking about how, how we can support each other. When you were growing up, when did you decide what it was you wanted to do? I'm not sure I still have decided. (laughs) (laughs) I think when I was younger, I wanted to be a nurse. And then I realised that was actually a really difficult job. um, And that probably involved dealing with people. I loved hanging around my grandmother and her friends. So I decided I couldn't really do that because that that involved quite a lot of medical stuff. And then I I probably just fell into the voluntary sector. My first role in the voluntary sector was working with the National Autistic Society. And I was always involved in different areas of volunteering. So I was a chair of governors at my local school for a number of years. I think that's probably where I started my journey in the voluntary sector in in organizations that were there to support people. Yeah, but you did that for quite a long time. Yeah. So where did you move on to? So my role from there, my role, my last role in the voluntary sector before I joined the Patient Association was working in a children's hospice in East London called Richard House. And I think there as well, the bit that I brought to the Patient Association was very much about, you know, it is not about the condition or the disease that a patient may have, but it's about the whole person. And what we need to do as a society and, and within a, NHS and social care in looking after that whole person. So values there became a huge part of, of the work we did in, in understanding that if you were to look after a child, you had to look after the family and the, and the community that was around that family in order to let people live the best possible lives that they can do. Yes. And then you joined the Patients Association yeah. just, just over two years ago and you've overseen a period of significant change. So can you tell us something about the motives behind that? 
So when I joined the Patient Association, I could see the great work that the organisation had done for a number of years, but anyone looking at our financial accounts at the time can see that we were in, in a pretty large deficit and that we had a lot of work to do. So we secured a team. There had been quite a high, a high turnover of staff for a number of while, so pretty much brand new, brand new teams since the beginning of 2017 and with a large turnover of staff, partly because a lot, of, a lot of the, sorry, of trustees, large turnover of trustees, mainly because a number of the trustees had been there for a number of years and it was time for the change. So yeah. pretty much a brand new trustee board as well. We, we started to do a lot of work on, on the evidence of how, how, how we gathered evidence and the ways in which we analysed the data that was coming through our helpline and analysed the data that was coming through the survey and the patient-focused work that we were doing to, to build a much, more, a much stronger evidence base. So you now have a new three-year strategy. We could, do. Could you... Well, we're a year and a half into okay. that, new year, that new strategy. Um, the same as us. Could you just give us the highlights, the headline points of that strategy? Yeah, so our strategy is completely about listening to patients and using that, inf evidence, using that information that we receive through our helpline and through our survey work and our project work to inform the changes that we think need to happen to within the health and social care system to ensure that patients are truly at the heart of their care and that they're equal partners within that care. Right. and. The relationship between our two organisations hasn't always been um, uncomplicated, amicable. When you came, you, you took a, a particular stance on that. Would you like to just tell us a bit about it? Because the Patients Association historically has been very critical of, of the Ombudsman Service. Yeah, and I think the criticism was for good reason. Uh, we had been receiving abundant evidence of the PHSO letting patients down and making things worse when they needed, needed their help, right or wrong. And we issued three reports, uh, 2014, 15 and 16. And in, the, in those reports, we called for change and we success, succeeded in getting change. PHSO had recognised the scale of its problems and the action needed to correct them. And it, you set out in place a strategy for how it would improve its performance across a period of years. And we welcomed that and we welcomed the new organisational leadership. Now, we've had, we asked for questions from followers on Twitter. And one question to you is this, why did the Patients Association take down the three damning reports into PHSO from their website? These should be the baseline from which we measure improvements. Well, they are the baseline from where we measure improvements, but we took them down, we launched a new website in 2008. 18 yeah. um, and had to make a decision about what was on, on uh, what remained on the website because we wanted something that was more up to date but our position statement on on the PHSO remains on our website and our position is that we recognize the extent of change the PHSO has embarked on and we agree it is extremely necessary and that we will judge the results for patients on their merits and would hope to see substantial benefits from this process in the next year or so. Okay, I mean, you haven't stopped being critical of us because, as we'll come on to discuss, you've made some 
critical points about our clinical yeah, advice review be, yeah. and ta taking that forward. So we've addressed that. We will that. continue to hold PHSO to account where, where we feel we need to, and we will continue to monitor through our helpline the number of calls that are coming in around the PHSO. And with our helpline, most of the calls that are coming in are around complaints, but across the whole system, not, not all about the PHSO. And we will continue to raise concerns with you, Rob, when we hear things that concern us. Well, that's reassuring. <laughs> what do you think is the best way of ensuring that patients' voices are heard and acted upon by those in power? I think the best way, the solutions are, solving it would be hard for as long as there's the kind of cost and staffing pressures going on within the NHS. And moving to a no blame culture is key. That doesn't mean that nobody is held responsible for their actions, but it means that NHS professionals can feel confident that systematic problems will be dealt with at systems levels and they won't be scapegoated. How we get patients' perspective in there, it's about training and that means it's going to have to be a generational shift because we need to see patient involvement built into the training curricula from the very early stages. Yeah. And, and for the moment we, we still don't really have patient-centred care. For the most part most decisions are really made about the patient as an are really made with the patient as an active and informed partner. You know, we've got the recent stories out there about the number of people being left on prescription drugs, many of them without even properly being informed about their prescriptions. And again, the financial and workforce pressures are part of the problem. If the system's barely functioning, you can understand people concentrating on system type problems and placing people in a role of constant crisis will inevitably shape their behaviour. So I think I agree with you that culture is at the core of what needs to be done. I also agree that individual clinicians, professionals and managers tend to see situations through the lens of the system, as you put it, rather than through the eyes of the patient. It's doing something about it that is the big issue. It's about resources, of course. It's about what sort of training we're talking about. For example, in my organisation, we have devoted a huge amount of resource into skilling everybody about their ability to communicate with complainants, which has been suboptimal in the past, so that they have the confidence to be able to treat people as individuals, not, not as cases. That's difficult, but, but, but it needs to be done. But there's also a defensiveness in the health service, which is more difficult to drive away to some extent it can be addressed through what you call the the safety culture issues the safe space but what's it going to take in order to remove the defensiveness of uh, of the health service i think leadership is key to remove i i often wonder if the word complaint is helpful the term complaint is helpful. You talk about communicating and the, the work that you've been doing as PHSO on communicating. Listening is really, really important. And acknowledging that we have learning, that there's always learning, and that if a patient raises a concern, that the ability to say sorry 
immediately and then to involve the patient and see that the patient is the expert in their care and know sometimes and know more about their care in in certain instances so it's about involving them fully but that needs leadership to allow that to happen and of course you know treatment of whistleblowers within the NHS it can illustrate that problem that staff are scared that it's going to be harmful for them personally and so how do you change that culture so that when we hear when I have a complaint to make that somebody welcomes the fact that I want to give feedback yes listening and learning and being prepared to have leaders who who protect people who speak up is is a big issue I was visiting a a big trust earlier this week and what they said to me, I had a good look around the wards, I talked to patients, I talked to the complaint staff and to nurses. One of the issues for them is that their resource and staffing situation is so acute that that pushes into the background the issue of complaints because too often they don't have the time or the skills to be able to d- to listen and and react in the way that you're talking about. So it's not just about changing behaviour, it's also about resources as well, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, which I, I think I said earlier on, the whole financial and workforce pressure is, is a huge part of this problem. And if people are working in, in what can be constant crisis, to have the time to sit and listen to a patient but I still take it back to culture and leadership because even in that environment, if we are encouraged to listen and encouraged to seek solutions, yeah. in the long term, that can only benefit our practice. I mean, one of the ways we're trying to address that issue directly is through the work we're doing on creating a national complaint standards framework and happily a whole tranche of regulators and patient groups, including the Patients Association, have committed themselves to working on this as we go to consultation. So we can get better complaints handling on the front line so that our organization becomes less essential because issues should be resolved uh, by then. Do you think that such a framework has the potential to be useful? Yeah. I do, and I, I think the, you know, the, the role that you see yourself in as the Complaint Standards Authority is helpful and, and useful, but I suppose how does it fit, fit in with other initiatives like NHS E&I's Patient Safety Strategy? And there has been other really good work done in terms of our good practice standards for, clinici- yeah. for complaints handling that was recommended by Sir Robert Francis in the Mid-Staffs report. And also the My Expectations for Raising Complaints that was done between the PHSO, Health Watch and the local ombudsman. So uh, building on, on that practice. So just what is the intended purpose when there is so many other good things that have been out there as long as we don't lose those. Yeah, I. I agree. It's easy to say, but our job is not to reinvent the wheel, no. but to build on good practice. And that's, that would be my only. That would be my concern that we're not reinventing the full wheel, and that we are developing on the back of those two very good documents. The other issue that you raise is more sensitive, I think, and to me, there is ultimately 
a tension between the need for a safe space and the need for accountability if they're pushed to extremes. I believe that the current situation, there's plenty of room for everybody to operate like HSIP, for example, creating the safe space and us creating the accountability. But in a, if it's pushed too far, then it becomes difficult for people to have confidence that there is real accountability. Yeah, and there has to be accountability, and that's where the patient association would sit, which is why those two previous standards that were there, um, we feel are really good, and as long as they get built on. But, you know, we look forward, to, we will continue to work with you on there and see where it gets to. Well, that's good to hear. Another question from Twitter. Someone has written in, very frustrated, can you ask Rachel why the hospital trusts that I had complained to tried to talk me out of it by telling me I was unusual, which is not true, and at a local resolution meeting made commitments that were quickly backtracked on. I have all these on a recording. Don't you think that just saying sorry is not enough? Absolutely. Saying sorry isn't enough. Saying sorry is a very important factor in listening to a complaint, um, but showing the learning and showing what difference the complaint is going to, uh, what impact the complaint will have on standards of service is, is crucially important for any, any patient. Okay, I, I agree with that. What I find is that hospitals are not very good at saying sorry. Regulators are even worse at uh, saying sorry. And if you're going to say it, you need to mean it and, uh, because people are not naive. Now, one more question. Sorry can feel like such a naive statement. And, and, and there's something about, you know, I think I spoke earlier on about values of empathy and understanding. And when you're receiving an apology, it has to feel meaningful and impactful. And, and show that there is a difference. And I think there was a lot of work done with the learning from deaths. And I know I've seen some letters over, the, over my time where it, it just doesn't feel genuine. And I think that's really unfair on a patient who's raised their concerns. The final question from Twitter is, is this. Can, can you ask Rachel what the Patients Association plan to do when hospitals don't follow good practice in terms of clinical advice about, for example, uh, pain relief options and, and other issues? So I think I'd want to understand more about that question, but that's what my helpline is there to do. Right. Um, and our helpline is there to give advice and support and signpost where they can. So I would suggest to that question that they should really get in touch with my helpline to get more information about what next steps if they feel that the hospital haven't been following the clinical guidelines. Okay. So one of the commitments that I made in the strategic plan of PHSO was to do a review of clinical advice and we commissioned Sir Liam Donaldson to uh, undertake a very important independent review of how we use it. I think it's fair to say you were quite critical of some aspects of how we went about the review. Would you like to say something about that? Yeah, we, it was a very short time frame and we advised, given the short time scale for consultation, that other than just written responses, it would have been good for the PHSO to give more opportunity for face-to-face -face engagement. And you did one, I think it was one quite small face-to-face -face engagement 
and we, we advised that there should be an open invitation to such events and the one event you did have it seemed to have filled up really really quickly on some yeah. of the feedback that we were given and that ended up with disquiet from some harmed patients but not being able to have a stay, stay in that forum yeah. unfortunately I think that wasn't helpful okay and can I respond to that I think that the points you make are fair I don't think it impacted on Liam Donaldson's criticisms of some of our practices which hopefully will be addressed in the course of, uh, of the coming year. There is a need to restore trust between complainants and the clinical advice we receive. Yeah. And the way to do that is to become more transparent. But the learning that I take from that is that we will make sure when we consult on the good practice framework that we make it democratic enough to ensure that patient voices are heard face to face and there's plenty of time to do that. Well that's really good to hear because I think that you know all, all the way through this interview we have been speaking about the need for patients to genuinely feel that they're being listened to and I know in some of the feedback we, we received was by the time they'd got the invite the event was full. So yeah. if we can open it up and make sure that those voices and those voices that you know, the PHSO did not serve well over the years um, can be heard so the learnings can be taken forward. That's true. That's why we have an annual open meeting. Yes. That's why we have radio ombudsman. So it has been a chastening experience, but we have learned from it. So we move towards the end. You've been around a long time in terms of advocacy and representing patients. I have a whole tranche of young graduates in Manchester who come to work for us as case handlers in the Ombudsman service, what advice would you give to them as they embark on their, their careers? Oh, I've got a lot of advice for them. <laughs> so I, I think the most important thing is they need to learn from the history of the PHSO, what went wrong and the fact that patients did not feel that they were being listened to. And whilst you're undergoing uh, a quite a major culture change, um, you know, through the clinical advice, we heard that patients didn't feel that their complaint was understood, that people didn't come back and ask questions. And so for new caseworkers, been very clear with the complainant what the crux of the complaint is so that you're, they're starting at a point where the patient feels that they're being listened to completely and that they live to the values of the organisation and the, but that there's a genuine personal value that they want to get it right and they want to get it right for the patient. And I think they would be my two, but also the, the whole skill and competency, and I know that you've been doing some work around competencies around, which you mentioned earlier in this, the competency around communication and listening. They're, and we often talk about them being soft skills. Mm. They are the most important skills that any caseworker can bring to the job. Yes. Well, we'll have to get you to do a masterclass in Manchester so you can develop these very important themes but uh, for the moment Rachel Power has been a privilege and a pleasure thank you very much indeed no thank you for inviting me 
Thank you for listening to Radio Ombudsman. We would love to know what you think, so please leave a review or comment. If you like what you hear, please share and subscribe to future episodes.